you are in the course category, a good talking to, and the podcast is 40 Years of Small Compromises. What we wanted to talk about uh, today is something that I call small compromises, small compromises. And, you know, you, you can find this information. If you happen to have my book, The New Three R's in Education, um, you can find it. Uh, it starts on page um, 19. And I speak about 40 years of small compromises, and I list 10 of them, and I'll guarantee you that there are more. But uh, what I really wanted to make everybody aware of is that change has a way of sneaking up on you. And um, sometimes you can wonder how you gained weight, uh, how you went broke, uh, how um, maybe, you, you know, your, your lack of... Uh, self-control, which we're going to talk about, uh, contributed to a problem that you may have, how you became an alcoholic, why you can't quit smoking. I mean, change has a way of creeping up on you. And lots of times parents wring their hands uh, when their children are very young and they and give up believing that there is really nothing that they can do about some of the behaviors that they see in their kid and they wonder why behaviors are so, relationships are strained, um, Sometimes parents can begin to feel guilty about their child's inability to get along in life as they grow older, and they and they enable the behaviors by offering excuses based upon some circumstantial or environmental defect. And at that point, what starts to happen is is the parent begins to blame teachers or society for their kid's disrespectful and irresponsible attitude. Well, let me tell you something. Children didn't wake up one morning and decide that they were going to be disrespectful and irresponsible. They just didn't, like, open their eyes and say, today's the day. The poor relationship that children have with their peers and ultimately with adults didn't develop in one day, a month, or a year. They happened over a long period of time. And that change was very incremental, and it it occurred over the course of 30 to 40 years because of the small compromises that parents, teachers, and society have made in the areas of respect, responsibility, and relationships. Now, I'm going to give you some illustrations that speak to this, but I want to tie this in, if you will, to the bullying problem that we're having right now. And I want you to please bear with me as I go through this, because I, I thoroughly believe, thoroughly believe, that much of what I'm going to speak about is contributing to this epidemic. And the first compromise that I'm going to talk about is Mr., Mrs., and Ms. Now, if you ever watched Nick at Night, if you happen to be my age, which is I'm going to be 56 in a few weeks, uh, you'll, you'll catch old episodes of Leave it to Beaver, uh, and uh, maybe uh, Ozzy and Harriet, or some old shows that are on there. And you'll find you you got one one of the um, characters in the show, and we all know him. He was Eddie Haskell. Um, and Eddie Haskell would come into the house, and he would go, Hello, Mrs. Cleaver. Hello, Mr. Cleaver. You know, and of course, then he would run up to Wally's bedroom, and he would say, um, you know, he would refer to Wally's father as your old man. Now, why is this something that I'm speaking about? Because I was leaving a, a home. I was picking up my daughter from her friend's house one uh, one afternoon. And she's leaving, and as she's leaving, she goes, Bye, Barbara. Bye, Lenny. And my comment to her was, Who are you talking to? And she said to me, I'm talking to to Kelly's mother and father. I'm saying goodbye to them. I said, well, why don't you call them Mr. and Mrs.? Why do you, and I'll use Brown for just for now. She said, oh, they don't mind, Dad. It's fine. Well, I went back into the house, and I, and I, said, to, I said to Len, I said, Len, would you mind if my daughter just called you Mr., please? And he said to me, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's no problem. 
And I said, well, how about Mr. Lenny? Can you live with that? And he said, sure, that's fine. So he was Mr. Lenny and Miss, Miss Barbara. And anyone that was the parent of one of my daughter's friends became Miss Debbie and Miss Patty and, you know, all the rest. Now, why is this important? Because by making a kid believe that they can use a, an adult's first name, we are scratching the surface at leveling the ground. And that becomes the problem that I have. The ground is not level. There is a, uh, there is a structure with adults and children. And the structure is, I'm the adult, you're the kid. And there are people that are 20 years older than me, and believe it or not, I still would call them Mr., and I'm 56. Sometimes I might run into a teacher that I had when I was in high school. I would still refer to them as Mr., because I can only remember the way the ground was when I was with them. And sometimes the less respect that kids have for casual adults, adults they meet, the less respect they'll have for teachers, police officers, and employers. It is absolutely critical for kids to refer to adults by Mr. and Mrs. Now, my daughter was in the car with me one, one afternoon, and one of her new friends got into the car, and I heard her whisper to my daughter and said, uh, What's your dad's name? And my daughter said, Mr. Burns. So I knew that I was on the right track. She got it. And my dear friend, who I've known for 30 years, and I've known some of his kids from the time they were teenagers all the way down to the age of two, referred to me as Mr. Burns, some of them until they were into their mid-30s. And finally, when I said to one of his sons, uh, whose name was uh, name was B, I said, "B, look, you could call me, you can call me Jim now. It's okay, you know." But I gave him permission to do it, and those boys were very respectful. And you could say that me and my friend are on the same page, and so on. And we are in a lot of ways. A lot of ways, we're not on the same page, but in this way, we were. You scratch the surface at beginning to plant the seed of disrespect. Adults are adults, kids are kids. That's one compromise that we're making. I mean, I've even been referred to in the hallway when I was working as a principal of a school as Burns. And I had to correct that. I had to correct it because I, I don't think it shows a great deal of respect for the person. And kids need to show it and they need to be taught it and this is one way that it can be done. The next one that we'll talk about, compromise two. Kids can't say anything they want. I, I worked with a, a very good friend of mine one time and believe me, I, I have about three friends so I'm talking to you about all three of them now. Uh, and he says to me, what's the smallest part of the body, you know, and, you know, I said to him, the finger, you know, and he looked at me and he says, no, it's the tongue. He says, and, you know, just because the tongue is the smallest part of the body, it can do the most damage, and I never really realized that. What is said can cause more damage sometimes than what's done. Words can really do damage that can be lifelong, and sometimes we don't even know what we're causing the problem. And, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we just weren't taught to shut up sometimes. When you're angry, when kids are angry, they need to be taught not to speak or to wait a little bit of time for what one of my good friends said to me, until better judgment prevails, until good judgment prevails. You're not giving somebody the silent treatment. You're using your head, and kids need to be taught that. There's no wonder in this world that we have dysfunctional adults because they were dysfunctional kids, because they didn't have the, the, the ability to say 
the right things. They weren't taught how to use the right behavior, how to use the right language. What you say can ultimately catch up to you. And as a, as a young child, they need to hear what their words can do. I always use the illustration of the deaf boy. Deaf boy had a brother who had a friend who mocked and carried on, was rude and discourteous, and one day they were leaving the house, and it was the deaf boy, the deaf boy's brother, and this mocking friend. And he made a comment about how, made started making fun of the way the deaf kid spoke going out of the house. Well, the deaf kid didn't hear, and the brother kind of gave a half-hearted laugh, and they left the house kind of like, no harm, no foul. Nobody heard except the deaf kid's father that was reading the paper in the den. Well, those two boys, the brother and the, the mocker, I'll call them, were leaving the house, were, were uh, in college, and they were uh, sophomores. They graduated two years later, both of them with degrees in administration. They went on the job hunt, and this mocker had an interview one day with a large insurance company. Uh, he had to go through one more phase of the interview process. He had to meet the vice president of the company. You know who it was? The deaf kid's father. And the only thing that he could think of when he met this kid was that he made fun of his son, and he didn't get the job. Your words will catch up to you, and kids need to be taught. Now, just think for a second in terms of bullying what kids say, and the disrespect that they show. Where does it come from? Sometimes it could be taught by an adult. Sometimes it could be something that adult is, an adult is doing to them or to other people that they observe. Usually, kids will pick up on their parents' language and how they treat others and their parents' attitude. I worked in a school system one time for many years, and I was an administrator. And when I had first gotten there, there was some seniors that were a pain in the neck. And with their language, bad attitude, when they communicated, they went to school and they wanted to become teachers. And they did become teachers, and they came back to the school district for an interview. I was still there. I was on a committee with a group of teachers to interview them. And the, you know, while we were going through the process, one of the teachers looked at me and said to me, do you think he's changed? Do you think he's changed? And, well, I couldn't answer it, but all they remembered was the bad attitude that he had as a senior in high school at the time because that's all I knew. Words. Words can cause a lot of damage. They can cause a lot of problems in the lives of others, and hurtful words sometimes are not forgotten. And when bullies use hurtful words and they say things that they shouldn't say, they hurt, and sometimes that can go down into the innermost part of a person's being. Kids need to learn respect, and they need to learn how to control their tongue. And this stuff didn't crop up overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It was over a period of many years, and I'm going to say 40 years, back in the late 50s and early 60s. That's almost 50 years now. Next compromise that's made, self-control. Self-control. Self-control is taught. Now, I went to a Catholic grammar school, and sometimes it had its benefits. You had to wear a uniform, so there wasn't any clothes competition. We went to church all the time, so we got some form of spiritual training. You couldn't think of using profanity because you thought the nuns could read your mind and would find out what you were thinking. We learned good penmanship. We were respectful, compliant, and responsible. And one of the things that, that I noticed was that no one gave me a choice in any of these areas. I was forced to do it. I wasn't like uh, the nun said to me, you, you, uh, it wasn't like the nun said to me, you can go to church if you like. Or why don't you try to hold your pencil a certain way? Uh, 
more, is that the way you speak to someone? If I didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done, there'd be blood stains on the blood stains on the floor. They clobber you. There's no question about it. Now, when you look at now that that type of control, that type of self-discipline, that is built in built into, I mean, to an individual. I mean, I had Sister Houlihan when I was in school, and I still hold my pencil perfectly. I almost uh, amputated my right hand when I was about uh, 13 years old, and I still have trouble with my thumb and everything else, but you know what? I, I never lost the ability to hold the pencil the correct way, and I look at the way some kids hold their pencil today, and I look at penmanship today, and it's horrible. But that's not the point. The point is I was taught. I was given the training to do what I had to do. Now, when you look at the difficulties that people face in their life, let's just think about the words, think about some actions, and think about having the self-control to do the right things when you're supposed to do it, even though you want to do it some other way. Look at some of the spending problems that, that we have as a nation. Look at some of the the difficulty we have with our uh, eating, our lack of exercise. Look at some of the problems we, we may have with with war, where we, we couldn't figure out how to get along and, and we, we just basically get angry at each other as countries. It's all related to the ability to have some self-control. And I think it is absolutely critical, absolutely critical to understand it. Okay, kids who want to bully need to have the control not to bully. I know that it's a learned behavior. I know that they've picked it up from somewhere. I know that, that it's not something that is born. I believe that it's made. And if they are in this position, they have to be able to stop doing it, and they have to control themselves. They're controlling their actions. They're controlling their tongue. Now, what controls somebody? Usually consequence, if it's the right consequence. But the bottom line here is, the bottom line here is, consequences sometimes don't work unless they create a little bit of discomfort. The discomfort is what will cause someone to stop doing something. You lose your job because you drink, or you have a heart attack because you smoke and eat too much, that discomfort will automatically convert into you rethinking what you're doing and developing greater controls over yourself so that you don't do them again and you don't kill yourself ultimately. My name is Jim Burns, and right now you are in Teacher Talk on Blog Talk Radio. The number to call in is 646-595-4965. I welcome your calls. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. Do me a favor and rate the show. Your feedback is important to me. And tell people to listen to the show in the archives if they're not already listening now. Connect with me on Facebook, if you will. There is a great group that's been formed there called Bullyproof Assurance. There's articles and all kinds of stuff there that you can that you can read. And we're doing our best to try and help with this problem in this country and right now in New Jersey because there's huge laws that have been in place. And you can check out the archives where I cover the anti-bullying Bill of Rights. <clears throat> now... Another compromise that was made, and it goes back to, and I'm going to use a couple of words here, reason, excuse, reason, excuse. Everybody has a reason for doing what they do. There are reasons why people do what they do. <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not even going to debate that. You may have been raised in a bad environment. You, you, you may have had, uh, uh, you know, you may have been injured emotionally. Uh, you, you may have had poor teachers, you may have had poor adult models in your life, you may have had things said to you, done to you, you know, and so on. You may have had difficulty with your parents, you may have left home in rebellion, you may have, <clears throat> your, your father could have been an alcoholic. There's all kinds of reasons why people do what they do. And they're good reasons. They're very good reasons. And if the, and if the, the behavior that's uh, associated with the dysfunction that you experienced when you were a kid happens to get into your adult life and that youth conflict became an adult conflict, now's the time to go get some help. 
and oftentimes, and it's been taught to me, you know, medication and therapy work real well. They work real well. But not enough people have what I call consequential thinking. And medication doesn't work in and of itself without the right therapy. Medication is something that people need to take to try and help them and help the therapy take hold. That's something that I have just learned in the last year or two. In education today, for some reason or another, we've medicalized the system where we believe all we have to do is give medication to a kid to help him control his own, his own behavior. And we, you know, and I'm not going to get into the debate about attention deficit disorder or uh, hyperactivity disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. Those are not things that, that I'm talking about right now. Okay, But we usually medicate for those, some of those things. Medication without therapy sometimes is just not going to work. And what we have to understand is that when, uh, when someone is given that diagnosis, there is a two-fold approach to trying to solve the problem. And we can't just decide that, you know, the kids in school medicate them, that'll slow them down. That's not changing his behavior. And I've had many parents say to me, okay, uh, you know, when, they, when a child comes to school and he acts up, that he didn't take his pill. I watched a, um, a house one time with you, Laurie, and he was treating a young boy who was the nastiest, most miserable kid going. And the, they discovered some, a spot on one of the behavioral centers of his brain, like maybe in the, what, the frontal lobe, which is where the executive function is. And when the mother found out that this youngster, his, her son, had this spot on his brain, she clapped her hands together and she said, you mean it wasn't me? Well, the bottom line is they took this little spot off, and the kid's behavior wasn't any better. And at the very end of the show, as only you, Lori, can say is Dr. House when he was parting with his mother, oh, by the way, your son's behavior, it was you. It is something that sometimes parents are relieved to believe that their son or daughter has a condition because it means that it wasn't them. The bottom line is it could be you. And you may have, to, as a parent, you may have to change some of the ways you deal with your children. You may want to look to try and develop deeper relationships with them. You may want to ask for forgiveness from time to time. You may want to sit in group therapy sessions with them to see if you can work out some of the difficulty that you're having within the relationship because it's that relationship that that child will take with him for a lifetime. And whether you want to believe it or not, as a parent, you are the you are the individual at one point in that child's life that that they he just idolizes and wants to be close to you, but doesn't know how to because of your behavior as a, as an adult. And don't think that medication is going to change anything in and of itself. And always understand, just because a child is on medication doesn't exonerate him from the consequences associated with his behavior. That's the idea of having consequential thinking, making him think, if I do this, what's going to happen? Life is based on a series of gains and losses. And if a kid who has one of these conditions is bullying and is on medication, that becomes the piece that you have to work on try and make sure that he stops the behavior. Because if it's that bad that he's taking medication, you know as well as I do it's going to get worse as he grows older. Now, next illustration. And I call this one, obedience has become a dirty word. Nobody likes the word obedience. And I started using it back in the early 90s. Teachers started to have problems with the word. In other words, like um, obedience, is that like training dogs or something like that? 
And obedience is just doing what you're told when you're told to do it with the right attitude. So, what do I do? I change the way I deal with things. I stop using the word obedience, and I say, okay, we'll use the word compliance. Compliance. Is compliance okay? Is that a better word? It means the same thing as obedience. But we'll change it. Now, how nice would it be as a parent or as a teacher if you ask your kid to stop and they stopped? Or as they as they got a little bit older, you said, just sit down and we'll talk about it. Or sit down and do your homework. Or anytime you ask them to do something, they just did it. That type of attitude that a child has gets developed in them through the relationship and the trust that they have with you. And if you have a poor relationship with your students or with your children at home and or as students in school, you will develop, you will discover that you're going to have less, less and less compliance in your students. Less compliance for a youngster entering that environment who has been given the idea that he can bully just becomes a bigger problem. Because, you know, he's not going to listen to you. And you can bet that he's going to do things that are that are going to be, you know, um, very inappropriate. He's doing inappropriate things at home. His parents can't control him. His parents come to school and fight for him in school. When he goes home and complains that the teacher's not treating him right or he's had trouble with another kid and he got blamed again for the bullying which he was to blame for, but he's saying, no, no, I didn't do it. You have to get compliance out of your kids. Sometimes it's something we really, rarely demand, and years ago, I mean, obedience was the only thing we ever wanted out of a kid. Now it's the last thing that we get. Parents rarely what I've noticed today, tell their kids what to do. They usually ask too many questions, and teachers ask too many questions. And it's something that we have to be aware of. Sometimes the questions are all in, you know, they're just things that we do out of either our training or, you know, just from things that we've read that we need to ask questions. You know, things like, Teachers might say to a kid, we're going to do math now, okay? Or, John, why are you out of your seat? Or, why are you late? Sometimes we might even say to a kid who's acting up, what's your problem today? What do you want to do? And in an environment that requires preparation, we might even say to a kid, where is your pencil? Well, the bottom line is if the kid knew where the pencil was, he'd have it. Interestingly enough, these are just things that are asked in a very nice way, but what we're doing in, in this situation, we're allowing the kid to alibi his own behavior. Why are you late? It doesn't matter why you're late, you're late. We'll talk about it later. Where's your pencil? Give him a pencil, let him get going with his work. I've seen too many teachers demand collateral from kids. Give me your shoe and I'll give you a pencil, which creates a circus atmosphere in the classroom. Illustration six kind of goes back, kind of goes back to a little bit about talked about with uh, attention deficit disorder and the medicalizing of education, and I and I already spoke about this. There are plenty of reasons for someone's behavior, but there are no excuses. And you know, we we have to be aware that people will have injuries that they, they come to school with or that we run into in society. But just because they have an injury doesn't mean that they're not held accountable. That accountability will teach that youngster, teach that student what he's going to lose through his own behavior. I mean, let's face it, Bill Cosby said it best when he said, hurt people hurt people. 
bullies come to school hurt, and they look to hurt others. So what we want to do is we want to understand that they are hurt. That's the reason why they're doing what they're doing. And we have to work with the bully to develop greater respect. But that doesn't mean that he's not held accountable for his actions. That's the key. So there are plenty of reasons, but there are no excuses. It's absolutely critical to understand that piece. My name is Jim Burns. Right now you're listening to Teacher Talk on Blog Talk Radio. The number to call in, 646-595-4965. Again, that number, 646-595-4965. I welcome your calls. Put the show in your favorites and tell your friends to check out the archives on Blog Talk Radio in Teacher Talk to listen to this show and there's several others in there that I'm sure they'll enjoy. Illustration 7. Can you handle the truth? You know how hard it is to tell the truth for most people today? It's, I mean, bullies don't tell the truth at all. They lie like rugs. Most of them. The truth is one of the things that escapes even adults. And most adults will tell you, you know, when, you know, they'll they'll give you the idea that they're they're as honest as a heart attack. And I need to speak to this issue for just just for a few minutes. First of all, if you want to create an an expert liar in your home. I mean, an expert liar. All you have to do is react to everything that they do, and the kid will lie to you, even when it is just as easy to tell the truth. Now, too often, everything that a child does in the home becomes shamed, or there's some type of of, uh, belittling behavior that goes along with every single... In other words, I could never please my father anyway. What's the use in trying? They get fed up, they they end, They get asked a question, they tell you a story, even though they the, tr- the truth was nothing bad. It wasn't anything that uh, was a problem. How'd you do on the test? No, I did all right. You know, I didn't fail, you know, and so on. Well, the the, the, the bottom line is, if he did fail, he shouldn't be shamed for failing. He should be getting extra help and see if he could do better. But reactive environments cause people to, to develop a lying attitude. Now, many of you, I don't know, uh, well, many of you probably have experienced a lot of lying in your lifetime. And I've been on dating sites and so on over the years. And I read, I read what people are looking for in a mate, you know, and so on. And I want somebody that's honest and trustworthy. Those are two words that always stood out to me, honest and trustworthy. They want somebody honest and trustworthy. You can't be a liar. That's on more than one profile that I've read over the course of many years. Not many years, about a year been doing it, you know, about a year. And the, and I'm not on any dating sites now, but the, the, the point that I want to make is, why are people asking for that like it's some type of, I don't know, like, like it's something that is beyond measure, beyond belief. It's something that if you have those qualities, you should stand out because you have those qualities. Honesty and trustworthiness are just qualities that we should have in us and we should build into our children because the the truth, there is nothing wrong with speaking the truth, whether it's good news or bad news. 
And teachers have had a tremendous amount of difficulty over the years telling kids the truth. Yeah, difficult it is to tell a kid or the parents of a kid that he failed a test. How'd I do on that test? Well, you did okay. We'll take a look at it. Maybe we'll try harder. You failed. You failed. My God, when I was in grammar school, and I'm going back many years, and I know things have changed and everything else, you know, if I got a 30 on a test that hung up there with everybody's 100, you know, I mean, I know that was kind of hard, you know, and so on. You had to, But you know what it did? It made me work harder the next time. Kids need to hear the truth as well from us. And kids will develop a lying attitude in a reactive environment. Now, just let me speak to lying for a minute. There are three kinds of liars that we, we have. Three. You have an outright liar. Someone who will lie when it's just as easy to tell the truth. That's the reactive environment. That's the reactive environment. That will do it. There's no question. Then you have a con artist. Someone who will just buffalo you and make you believe, you know, that everything is just hunky-dory, everything's fine, uh, all the bills are paid, everything's taken care of. As a student, he's one of these kids, where's your homework? I'll have it in tomorrow, I promise. Um, you know, they, they're schmoozers, they're charismatic, they, they just, you believe everything they say, but they are absolute con, C-O-N artists. They are, and, and that's when they're at their best. They are BSing people every single day. They embellish. They enlarge. They make things worse than they really were. They're terrible. It's terrible. And, and you don't even know what's happening because they're such nice people. Bullies are very charismatic when they're, when they're trapped. And they will con you into believing anything. Understand that. Bullies believe everybody likes them. And it's very difficult to like a bully. Because when he's not bullying, he's, he's a very sweet person. Because he's talking to you, and he's talking to others, and he's nice, and so on. But he's not doing that to his victim. And if you ask him about what he's doing, you'll even have a hard time believing that he bullied anybody, only because of the fact that you always you may have seen him as a pretty nice kid. That's the con artist. And the one that we deal with the most in education and probably in society is when we don't have the full story, when information gets left out. He is somebody that's known as the withholder. He withholds information and doesn't give it all to you. He gives you the piece that keeps him out of trouble to make him either as a student or as an adult or as a spouse or an employer, look victimized by the situation. And kids in school today, if they end up getting themselves in a, either a verbal uh, fight or a physical fight, they will always say that someone set them off and someone did this and someone said so-and-so and on and on, and they come up with reasons why they did what they did, but they withhold what they did. They don't give you the full, the full story. And the truth, the truth is something that needs to be spoken at all costs. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes you don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes when you have to speak the truth, it's going to hurt. Sometimes there's going to be disappointment. Sometimes there's going to be upsetment. Sometimes there may be a reaction. But it's either react now, okay, deal with that reaction now, or deal with the reaction later when people do finally find out the truth and they're upset because you didn't give them the whole story. John Bradshaw once said, telling a lie only produces future pain, and that's something that we have to be aware of. And bullies are expert at lying. They are expert at lying. So we have to always listen with our 
with our ears, our eyes, our mind, our heart, our soul, and weigh everything in the mix and, and make a determination of what was said was the truth or not. Illustration number eight. Who will parent the parents? Who's going to parent the parents? My father was, uh, let's see, I'm going to have to go back now. I was 13 years old, so that's 43 years ago. My father was about mm, 13, 60 years old when his mother died. 60 years old, his mother passed away. His wheels fell off. He still needed to have the that authority figure in his life. That was his mother. My mother was somewhere around, um, I don't know, she may have been 55 when her mother died. It's a big difference between my mother and father's age. Her wheels fell off. She didn't do well. She always needed her mother to speak to and talk to and deal with situations with to help her. Many of our young parents today have have ha, have children, but they may have left home in rebellion. They may have left home and had a bad relationship with their mother and father, and maybe very rightly so. Maybe their their parents may have given them reasons for having this relationship. But it is a known fact that if an individual grows up in life with contempt for their own parents, they have a whole lot of difficulty parenting their own children and dealing with some of life's very basic basic situations. Sometimes a person could leave home in rebellion just to get out of the home and get married at a very young age have children at a very young age, and have difficulty dealing with their children at a very young age because they're not getting any support from their parents. Now, I've seen parents that have come into school who have children in the school, and I want to tell you something. They need more help than you could ever imagine. And if their relationship with their mother and father, I mean, I, I, mean, I asked a parent one time, I said, you know, are your parents still alive? And they go, yeah. They one one mother said to me, yeah, I don't talk to them. And I'm figured I'm, you know, maybe you don't talk to them. This is when I first came to terms with this. Maybe you don't talk to them. Haven't spoken to them in about you know six months, or you had a problem or a fight. I said, how long have you not been talking to them? They go, like 25 years. Mm. 25 years. I mean, like when you were a teenager, you stopped talking to your mother and father. Yeah, I left home and. And then they, they leave home, they get married, they have kids, they have trouble with their kids, and they have nowhere to go for the support or the help. But who's going to parent these people who need some parenting? When I look at myself working as an administrator, I believe I did a lot of parenting and offered a lot of assistance to younger parents who, who needed help dealing with their kids. But the bottom line, the bottom line is, if you are having difficulty with your children and with parenting skills and you look at things in terms of what your relationship is with your parents, you'll discover that some of the difficulties you may have had are tied into the relationship that you had with your own mother or father. And the schools are taking on a bigger role now in terms of parenting. Parents and helping them deal with the kids that are in the school. From a bullying perspective, parent doesn't know what to do. What do you think they do? They react. They holler. They scream. They carry on. Maybe they bully themselves out of frustration. They send the wrong message. They send the, they present the wrong model. And then what happens? The kid ends up reacting to his parents. He goes into school and he reacts to other children. Picked on in a home. He picks on other kids in school. 
understand that if you're a, if you're a mom or a dad. Understand it. Very important. The models you present in the home become the models that kids take with them. And the messages that kids get in the home are the messages that they'll take with them into society and into the world and into school. And again, I'll share this again. Youth conflict turns into adult conflict if it's not dealt with. Illustration 9, and we're going to start moving here. Life-changing words from a father. My father often had nothing good to say. Nothing at all. He wasn't complimentary. He wasn't edifying. He didn't nourish my soul. He didn't nourish my spirit. He was one of these people that needed to be parented. He was probably immature in his own way. We had drinking binges, so on. But there was a point in my life at around 15 years old when I was really becoming a very good baseball player. Very good. And I used to have my cousin stay with me during the summer for a few days at a time. And I had a ball game on a Monday, and my cousin was there on a Sunday, and he wanted to stay over Sunday uh, on Monday night, on Monday, to see me play in my ball game. He was a really good kid. He was a rooter. He would root for me all the time. I really enjoyed my cousin. I don't see him anymore either because of a problem that my mother had with her family that alienated every cousin that I, that I had. But that's another story. So my cousin goes to the game, and I get the game-winning hit, and I'm a catcher, and I throw all kinds of guys out, and I had a great game. And I left the game with my friends and walked home, and my cousin had to be taken home from the game by my father. He worked. I got home. He had gotten home. We didn't see each other. He, we all went to bed. He got up, went to work the next day. I went out. The next day, okay, I came home at about 5 o'clock. Now, my father always took a nap at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon because of the fact that he worked and he had to work the night shift and he wanted to get sleep so he could stay awake till 2 in the morning. And he would always nap in his soft clothes, comfortable, but he was an impeccable dresser, tough, you know, starred shirts, Tie tack, diamond, beautiful pants, shine shoes, nice tie, always looked great. The bar was his office. I came in the door one uh, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. My father was in that same chair, but he was sitting in the chair like Lincoln, completely dressed. And he got up out of that chair like he had a spring in him, and he ran over to me and he wrapped his arms around me and he said to me, I was so proud of you last night. And he started to hug me a little bit, and I said, this is like for real. And you know what? I started to believe it. I started to really believe it at that point. And all the other things that may have been said or done to me kind of like melted away. They melted away, and, and I began to have that connection with my dad and believe what he said. They were life-changing words. And every parent, if they've had difficulty with their children, and if they've had poor relationship with their children, can make a difference if they just go to their kids and let them know how important they are, how much they love them, how proud they are of them, and make a difference make a difference. If you've got a kid in school right now that's having difficulty and you're wringing your hands and you don't know what to do, let me tell you something. Words, the words that I spoke about earlier that can be hurtful can be healing. Can be healing for this for a child. And maybe you even have to ask for forgiveness. I don't know. But if you got a kid in school that's having a lot of trouble with other kids, with teachers, is rude, disrespectful, and irresponsible, try to evaluate what you can say to that kid. Love and affection can, can take care of 
a million things, and I want to tell you something. Time can take care of it as well. Time. Give your children the time that they need to help them overcome some of the difficulties that they may have, whatever they are, because that relationship between you and that child didn't get that way overnight. It got that way over a period of time. And you have to take the time now to try and repair it. In my case, it was one sentence. I, am, I was so proud of you last night. Changed my entire outlook. So understand that, Mom, Dad. If you've got difficulty with your son or daughter, evaluate how much time, love, and affection you're giving your children and what kind words are you saying to them. That will make a difference. Last one, fear the greatest motivator. I went to college, and I, and I was on the verge of flunking out my freshman year. My mother and father owned a bar. I was going to take over the bar, but I figured I'd go to college to see what would happen. My, my first semester as a freshman, I had a 1.0 cumulative average. They were getting ready to throw me out of college. And I told my parents, I told my dad, I said, I, you know, I told you I couldn't do it. And they looked at me and they said, you're going to have to do it because we're selling the bar. I went back to college. I graduated with a 2.9 cumulative average, that, which is a, you know, when you have a 1.0, a 2.9, in the very beginning, a 1.0, a 2.9 at the end meant I got a lot of A's. What motivated me? Fear. Sometimes fear. The right kind of fear. Not the fear of physical punishment, but, but the fear that, you know what, I am responsible now. I am the one who has to take the bull by the horns. Some kids, when they get ready to go off to college, are so filled with fear but they fear not being supported. They fear not having enough smarts. They fear that they're going to have, you know, that they're not going to get accepted into college. All you have to do is support them to help overcome that fear. But healthy fear sometimes, meaning like I don't know where I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's going on. I don't know, you know. I have to be responsible. People who are irresponsible from time to time can become, are irresponsible because they're so fearful about making a decision or doing anything. They, they, they figure the way, the way to make sure things go okay is to do nothing. The bottom line is they have to do something. If you know that your son or daughter is fearful about the future, fearful about their grades, evaluate what you're doing to create that fear and help them move forward. Fear can be a motivator for our kids. Fear of disappointing us. You know what? You're not going to disappoint me. I'm not going to be disappointed. But it's nice to know that, that you're working this hard because of the fact that you're concerned about what I think. But I'll always love you. I'll always love you. I'll always love you because you're my son, you're my daughter. You're part of who I am. And lots of times kids bully out of straight fear. And I want us to be aware of that. Friday night. This concludes this podcast.